What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 30 of the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders and find out how they have led with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike Lynch, and it is an honor to be on this leadership journey with you as we're all seeking to be the leaders that we can be in the space and the place that God has put us. Well, today is a big day. Episode 30. Never dreamed I would get to episode three, let alone episode 30. Amazing people along the journey and amazing leaders that we've gotten to sit down with. So many more coming in late 2018, 2019. But today is one I have really looked forward to. You know, in everything that you do, there there's gold standards. There's the gold standard in the hotel chains. There's the gold standard in restaurants. There's the gold standard in business, gold standard in churches. There's a gold standard in the interview space. In, in this little world of podcast and in this world of great skill sets, there's a guy who has been the standard bearer. His name is Ken Coleman. You may remember him from the Catalyst Leadership Podcast uh, for many, many years. That's where I first got to know Ken, listening to him. And now as the host of the Entree Leadership Podcast for Dave Ramsey, Ken Coleman sets the standard for those of us that are out there asking questions. He's a leader in the space of interviewing leaders and making sure they get their thoughts out there so we can consume them. And that is only done by asking great questions. The two guys that are out there right now for me that I learned from are Ken Coleman and Kerry Newhoff. There's tons of other great ones, but they are the guys that that really resonate with my heart. And I go, man, I want to be more like them. Well, you've gotten to hear from Kerry. Now you get to hear from Ken. Now I'll tell you in advance, I don't get nervous a lot. I was a little nervous interviewing Ken because Ken is such a great interviewer. But I'm telling you, the time we spent together unearthed so many great leadership nuggets, principles, passions, man, how his faith has influenced who he is today. So you are going to enjoy our time together. So I want you to pull up a chair. I want you to listen in, get your thumbs ready, get your fingers ready to type or your hand ready to write. And I want you to take down some of the great thoughts that Ken left for us. So listen in to my time with Ken Coleman. Well, Ken, thank you so much for joining me today on Lynch with a Leader. It is an honor to have you. Well, it's an honor to be with you, Mike. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to our conversation. Well, you are, you're one of the early podcasters, man. You were one of the guys at the Catalyst. When y'all were doing your Catalyst podcast, you had your own unique style. Was that something that was something y'all had a brainchild to go, let's go that route? Tell me a little bit of that story. Yeah, man, thank you for asking that because, you know, I'm really proud of that in, because we just 
threw it against the wall. That's the short answer. It was a brainchild. And the short story is uh, I was uh, working as a contractor for Catalyst. I had worked full-time for John Maxwell before he sold the organization. And Gabe Lyons was an advisor of Catalyst. He was no longer full-time. He helped launch that. It was uh, largely his vision. Uh, and so he and I, we went back to Liberty University that we met as, as literally teenagers. And so Gabe and I are in this advisor contract role for Catalyst. And this was the season of my life, Mike, where God had already stirred me and pushed me into this vision of broadcasting. Mm. Yet it's really early and I have zero idea how I'm going to pull this off. And um, I'm kind of dragging my feet, a little bit scared. Have I lost my mind? Are my friends going to think I'm crazy? So that's what's going on in my life. Yeah. And I had been, I'm a ferocious reader. I will tell you that. I read uh, current events, all kinds of stuff. And I had heard this term podcasting maybe two weeks prior to the conversation that I'm about to share. And I had read a little bit of it. I thought, well, this is interesting. And this is when we all had iPods. Do you know what I'm talking oh, about? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I was so excited I could listen to you two on this little device called an iPod. It was the coolest thing ever. And I was one of the first people that I knew to get one, right? By the way, my publicist is sitting next to me and she's like 25 and she's embarrassed <laughs> because like she's never even had an iPod. It's, it's like a transistor radio to her. Yes. Anyway, so, but the, you remember this, don't you, Mike? iPods were the coolest thing. And if you had one, you were the, you were the deal. That's right. And so... I started subscribing to these podcasts and I was like, well, it's basically like a radio show and it just comes through your iPod. And I thought, this is really cool. And I'd read all these business articles like Fast Company were writing about it, Inc. Magazine. It was really cool. <laughs> and I went in one day and I said to Gabe and Brad Lominick, because uh, Brad was, 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 you know, really starting to run, run the show. And I said, guys, have you heard of podcasting? And they both said, yeah, I don't know much about it. And I said, I think it's a great direct-to-consumer distribution channel. And I go, I think we need to get on this on the front end of it. I, these articles are saying it's the next big thing. So it wasn't like it was my vision. It was just, I kind of believe what I'm reading. Yeah. And Gabe says, okay, nobody's got the time to do that. Are you willing to do it? And I go, yeah, I'd love to host it. You co-host with me. Uh, because I had not really emerged on the catalyst stage yet. I was more behind the scenes at that point at the live events. And so anyway, I've taken way too long to answer it, but here's what happened. Gabe goes, all right, let's try it. And uh, I said, yeah, let's make it an interview thing. Let's interview these speakers that we've been putting on the stage that people are flocking to hear. And let's just make it an interview thing. Let's not get too cute. And uh, Gabe goes, fine, let's do it together and we'll figure it out. And so uh, I think Erwin McManus was the first one. It might have been Andy Stanley, actually. Anyway, it just took off. It took off. And I think we were way ahead of the curve, certainly in the evangelical space. We were one of the first legitimate podcasts that really grew. And it became a huge platform for me, Mike, and a training ground to do the work that I was called to do. And I've, I've developed my chops as an interviewer. And then that led to me getting on the catalyst stage and doing these high profile interviews in front of 12,000 pastors, which is very intimidating. And uh, it was the joy of my life. It was the joy of my life. It really was uh, some of the great memories of my life, professional memories, personal memories are a result of the catalyst podcast. So it was just a brainchild that we tried and it worked. That is great. Well, it's so funny because as a 
and, and you can tell Mackenzie this as an iPod carrier back in Atlanta, back during that time, yeah. you're, you're always wanting to learn. But, you know, back then you had the Enjoy Life Club that, that Maxwell yes. would send out. You could subscribe to Hybels and they'd right. mail you the CD once a month. But it was really the first time that you had access to behind the scenes and leaders lives. And, and you're like, all right, the conference was great. But man, getting to hear more from Irwin or getting to hear more from Andy. And you did such a great job. And I'd love to know, did the interviewing piece just come incredibly natural to you? Did you go, when you started doing it, did you go, man, this was what I was wired to do? How, how did yes. the whole interviewing piece come about? Yeah, I would say a big part of it came to me naturally. Um, I, you know, every kid, Mike, comes into the world hardwired with this insatiable curiosity. Anybody that's ever had a kid knows that. So I don't know that I was any more curious than anybody else, but I think that I held on to it a little bit longer. You know, life has a way of beating the curiosity out of us. And I was the kid that was always fascinated with why uh, I read a lot. Uh, My dad made a very intentional decision not to put a TV in our home until I was probably 11 or 12. So therefore, I was using my imagination, playing with toys, you know what I mean? And having these weird conversations and doing what kids do when you don't have a TV to, and you didn't have video games like we do now. And I read a lot too. I enjoyed reading. I was blessed with the gift of being able to read well, so it wasn't a barrier. And my dad interest, uh, introduced me to some of the great novels and I fell in love with stories. And I think that that fed the curiosity. And uh, But yeah, I always wanted to get to the bottom of things. I, I'm really fascinated by human behavior. I think that's just the big source of all of this. And I like to know how people tick and why they tick. And that's interesting to me. So yeah, I just came to it naturally asking decent questions. Mm-hmm. And then I started studying great interviewers. Uh, I began to consume because I said, okay, I'm pretty good at this because people were saying things to me like, you're pretty good at this. That was enjoyable. And so then I went, oh, okay. So I'm a little bit above average, but I could get really good at this, I think. Hmm. So I, my favorite television show was Larry King Live. I loved it. I mean, absolutely obsessed with it. And uh, I just loved it. He was just elbow to elbow with these, these, these people. And he was not doing all the talking. He was digging and learning. And I loved Inside the Actor Studio. I still love that show. Um, I loved uh, Charlie Rose's format. Again, just two people at a table. And, you know, we're going to dive deep. So I began to study those people. Bob Costas was another person that I studied his style. And so what happens is, you know this, Mike, when you consume yourself with observational learning, you pick up traits a lot faster than you know, textbook type studying, like you got to see it and listen to it. And uh, it rubbed off on me. And then I developed my own style because I went to Catalyst and uh, said, Hey, I'd love to do a stage interview sometime. If you got somebody you don't trust to do a keynote talk and Brad Lominick went with it. And the first time I did it was Tony Dungy, Mm. 12,000 pastors in Gwinnett arena. And Mike, you probably remember that. I mean, it was a Yeah. Yeah. And so here I got to interview this pretty shy, legendary coach. He's a football coach, and I got 12,000 pastors, and pastors are the most critical audience there is. 
I mean, I don't say they that all are sitting there thinking they could do it better. That's why. Well, yeah. yeah. He didn't ask this. Why didn't he ask this? So honestly, like I was terrified. And one of the few times in my life that I've been terrified on stage, cause I'm a ham. I just love the attention. And you know, some people are sick and born with that. And I'm one of those people. So I had to do this 30 minute interview with Tony. And it was in that moment, Mike, that I developed my interview strategy. So I'd been studying and I had been coming up with style points and things like that and using little bridges and things. But it was that moment that I developed my interview strategy and I have a strategy and it's, uh, I had to say, uh, what does this audience want to know? That was the first question I asked myself. And so I got all these pastors that are coming to a leadership conference. So what do they want to know? Why did they sign up? Then I asked, what do they need to know? And that's a very different question. If you really think about it, it it's, it's, a, it's a slightly different, but hugely different when you get the answer. So what they want to know is the things that they signed up for. What they need to know is their real pain points. And we need to challenge them. And so you as an interviewer have to go deeper on that. What do they need to know? Mm -hmm. And so then after you get those two answers, you go, what can a football coach say in an interview that is going to answer those two questions? So that's how you determine if you're adding value as an interviewer for your audience. You got to pull out of your guest what it is they want to know and need to know. That's your number one job. Maybe your only job in the interview. So that was helpful. So then I don't know how I came up with it, but I started writing the last question first with Tony. And the reason was I said, you know, this as a pastor, any good speaker knows where he wants to take his audience at the very end. Like, what's the final destination? Yep. And so it was the same thing with an interview. And so I was like, what, what would be the final question? It needs to have some, you know, it's got to be T and Tony up to really drop the mic. And so I wrote the, the final question. I had great clarity there. So then I was able to go, all right, if that's where I want to end up, where do I need to start? That's good. And here's what happened in that moment. I get up there in front of 12,000 people and I realized that my preparation allowed me to ad lib and to be creative in the midst of the interview because I had all my questions written out. They were on my lap. I had asked them in my head a hundred times. I knew I'd visualized the interview. And in the moment I was able to ad lib and stay where I needed to stay or go where he was taking us. Mm -hmm. And um, it just made for such a fun experience. And I'll never forget this, Mike. I walked off of that stage and I walked into the uh, green room backstage there. And Andy Stanley was talking to Louis Giglio. And these are two dudes that to this day, I admire as communicators about as much as anybody alive. Yep. And you know this about Andy. He's not a very extroverted dude. No. He kind of stays to himself. Yep. And I walked back and he knew who I was. And we had talked before, but we were by no means buddies. And he was talking to Louie and he stopped me. He stepped out of the conversation and almost stepped in front of me. He went, hey, Ken, I got to tell you something. That's one of the best interviews I have ever heard in my life. And that was God's way of just giving me a little hug there. And so because of all of that, I was able to say, I'm going to stay with that process. Boy, that's so good. So that's how my process that I use came about. 
That is so good. And, you know, for so many athletes, coaches that don't speak for a living, it takes the pressure off them. Sure. It they're does. not having to guide it. They're getting to tell their stories and do what they're so good at. That's right. And that, that, that was one of the first ones I ever remember seeing done quite that way. And man, you've got, I never knew the behind the scenes of it. So that, that is a, well, you that remember money. We really let him through his, it's almost like we, we, we let him through his biography. Yeah. It felt very, very natural. And it was one last thing I, I want to mention to those out there who say, hey, I'd like to be better at interviewing, whether they be pastors and they're doing interviews in their churches, the preparation. So you can come up with your own process, but the preparation beforehand and knowing how many questions you think you're going to need based on the time slot. Yep. Uh, here's two little tips. One tip is how much time do you have? If you got 30 minutes, yep. Go watch some Tony Dungy interviews and find out how long he normally answers a question. So let's say his normal answer is two minutes. You got 30 minutes. You better have 15 questions. Yep. You may not use them all, but that's one little tip. The second tip is when you prepare the way I had prepared there, I knew where I wanted to go, but I didn't have to like glance down at my notes all the time. Hmm. So I could fully listen to Tony's answer. The number one mistake that interviewers make, in my opinion, is that they don't prepare enough and they stop listening to their guest about a minute, a minute and a half before they're finished because they're, they're too busy preparing for their next question. Yep. You got to be so in the moment that you can really listen and do a follow up um, because that's where the gold happens in a real conversation. And, uh, but most people don't, they're too busy looking at it. But if you know where you're going, then when the person is done, if you don't want to do a follow-up, you can glance at your question and boom, yep. right into it. So those are two really practical tips to make an interview feel and sound like a real conversation. Well, that's so good, man. And, you know, really at the end of the day, it's really great counseling skills is really what it is. It's what a great coach, yes. a great life coach or a great counselor does. They, they let the person guide the conversation and then they pull out, they have a, they have a place they're going, but they're able to pull those things out. I mean, you are, and I, and I told you this before we went on the air, you are the best interviewer in a, in a, in a format like a catalyst or in a format like entree leadership, you're the best, you're who I've learned from. Oh, thank and, you. and yeah, absolutely. And man, back even in iPod days and, and back when you didn't even know, <laughs> you didn't even know what, what you were doing. And I remember early on in your catalyst days, I remember you guys talking about Liberty university a lot. And I yeah. remember listening to the episode where Dr. Falwell had just passed Yes, and how shook up, you guys weren't so funny. So I'm a Liberty grad as well. Oh, cool. And man, you, you felt it. I mean, yeah. you tell, tell me a little bit about your experience at Liberty. Cause you, we weren't there in the Walt Disney world days. They're living. No. I've got a daughter there now. Good night. Oh, it's like an amusement park compared to what we went. Oh my God. She's yeah. like, dad, what did y'all do? I said, <laughs> we walked to the water wheel in DeMoss. She's like, no, seriously. I went, no, seriously. There was a water wheel in DeMoss. That's yes. what we did for fun. That's so tell exactly me a little right. bit about your Liberty experience and how it shaped who you are today. Yeah. I, I showed up at uh, Liberty's campus in the fall of 1992 um, I had just turned 18 in July and I revered Dr. Falwell. Uh, my dad was very involved in moral majority when I was, you know, probably seven, eight years old. So, you know, moral majority really came to power and influence in 1980 when Reagan ran against Carter. 
And so I'm six years old at the time, but very in tune that my dad thinks this guy, Jerry Falwell is great. And I just, that's all I knew. And so all those many years later, I felt God had uh, called me into politics. I now know, and I went into politics Mm -hmm. later, but at this point I'm thinking it's the call of my life and I want to go to a Christian university. I'd gone to Christian school my whole life. And I knew that Jerry was very connected politically and I'd done some homework and they had great political internships. And so that's what I was going to school for was the political internships. And sure enough, my first semester, Mike, I was, I got connected to Bush Quail headquarters and me and three or three other friends, uh, another guy and two other girls, we would drive up every weekend on a Friday. As soon as class was out, we would drive to Washington and uh, we were staying with a, a nice couple and that let us stay there. And we were working all weekend in the Bush Quail headquarters. Good night. Sunday night, we would drive back to Lynchburg and get ready for class. So it was a great experience. Uh, I met some of, I met my best friend in my life there. Hmm. Uh, I met my best man there. I met um, some people that uh, I think altered my um, trajectory in the form of the speakers that, that, uh, Dr. Falwell had come and speak to us. Mm-hmm. There's no question that it shaped my future in so many ways. Um, it was just a great environment. And if I had it to do all over again, I'd go right back because of the people that I met, mm. um, and the people that I learned from. That's so good. And I, I 100% with you, 100% with you, you know, you, for so many people, they knew the Jerry Falwell that was in Time Magazine or the Jerry Falwell they saw sliding down the water slide at, at, at BTL. <laughs> That's when I got to be. A, right. I left. So I left there in the fall uh, or in the spring of 91. So I okay. just missed you oh by a year. Oh, my gosh. We yeah. really missed each other. Just, just missed you. Oh, that's cool. But um, I went there to play baseball. So I went there oh, for yeah. other reasons other than what I sure. got out of it. But you know, you look back, I don't think people really understand talking about leadership, mm-hmm. the leader yes. Falwell was. What, what was it about him as a leader that yeah. you say impacted you the most? Well, I want to say thank you for asking that question because we don't talk enough about Dr. Falwell anymore in the Christian space. And it, it, it makes me profoundly sad. Mm. So I'm going to answer that by saying, I think he's the greatest visionary leader I have ever known in my life. Uh, you know, that's the guy had vision leaking out of his ears. Uh, he just, I've never seen. And, and, and let me say this too. It's not just the clarity of his vision. It was the boldness of his vision. Mm. He was, he was really adept and, and quite frankly, brilliant at both. And, and I think that's a clear distinction. The great visioneers in, in any space in history they have been good at clarifying it. Like it's one thing to have a vision. It's another thing to go, all right, I'm going to dive deep in this and I'm going to keep hacking away at it almost like a tree and I'm chopping down a tree. And Jerry was really good at having an initial vision, but then he kept iterating on it and he kept diving into it. And by the time you heard it, it was crystal clear. So his clarity is where he was brilliant, but then it was his boldness. You know, it's not enough to be clear with your vision. Everybody's got to know that not only is he clear, we're going to get there by hell or high water. And that was Jerry. Mm. He didn't know how he was going to get there when he first clarified it and put it out there. No, but he, It didn't matter because you were just like, all right, well, that's what's going to happen. And, and by the way, his vision is coming true every day in Lynchburg right now. And that's, that's what's right. so amazing. So that's my answer, I think. But, you know, he was also... Um, 
I guess if the, the other thing that Jerry had was a tremendous amount of belief in people. Mm. Like I would say those are the things that I admire most about Jerry is, is his vision. And then his belief in people, he, uh, he had tremendous belief. He could, he could inject you with some of his belief and then you just, you know, all right, give me that water pistol over there. I'm just going to go right into hell. That's right. Extinguish the flame of hell with this little $2 water pistol. He had that ability to, to, to project that onto people. You know, I remember I was at uh, Clemson this fall for a football game and, Dabo walks out on the hill and when he walks out on the hill, when the team gets ready to run down, the place just goes nuts. They erupt. And the last time I remember seeing that was graduation at Liberty when Mm. Doc would walk up to the top of Vine Center (laughs) and the entire student body would stand and start cheering. And I don't think anybody saw outside Little Liberty. I don't think anybody saw that. I don't think anybody knew that. Was there a quote of his, Ken, that you say, man, this is just something that's ingrained in my mind and without even remembering sometimes where it came from? Is there anything that stood out to you? Yeah. Can I just say, I got goosebumps all over my body because of that question. This is crazy because I haven't thought of this in years. Yes, there's a crystal clear quote, and it was from a message he preached at Thomas Road Baptist Church, probably my junior year, I think. And this is what he said in his sermon. He said, the man or woman of God is indestructible until God is ready to take him home. Mm. I got goosebumps. Wow. Yeah. The 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 man or woman of God is indestructible until until God's ready to take him home. And he was preaching on, he was preaching on courage. You know, courage in your faith. And he's like, what are you afraid of? And, you know, he lived his life that way. That's right. And, you know, that's how he died. He died at his desk. You know, his, they mm. walked in and found him and had forehead down on his desk, full suit and tie, uh, stuff going on. And, and God was ready. God took him. Mm. But he he lived that way. He lived fearlessly. And so to me, that's it. Yeah. And so it's helped me not be uh, overcome by fear. I've, I've had fears and I have fears and I'm in the most exciting time of my life. And there's a lot on my shoulders. Dave Ramsey's put a lot of trust in me and it's all or nothing. And I've got to, it's got to work. And if I'm not careful, if I'm not in the right spiritual frame of mind, I can get pretty stinking scared. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, the man of God, the woman of God, the saint, is indestructible. God, that's so good. That yeah. is so right? good. Like when that your time is... when your time's up, your time's up. So that's why right. are you worried about it? Until I, then, go for it. I don't know if you've been up there to see the the flame where he is on campus and all the quotes that they have around. Oh yeah, I had a little solemn moment there about. Uh, let's see, I spoke at convocation in 2013. Wow. And before I checked in that morning for convocation, we showed up on campus a little early, and there was a time where I had to go check in at Vine Center before I went and went out and spoke. And my wife and I got there early, and I said, "Hey, do you mind if I just go up here alone? We can come back later." And she said, "Yeah." And so it was cold and. Uh, I walked up there and, and thankfully no one else was there. And I just kind of had a moment. Mm. Yeah, mm. it was cool. I get it, man. Cause I, I you know, get- I had the privilege of knowing doc. Uh, I was very involved in student government. And so I got to know him personally. He married Gabe Lyons, uh, yeah. who was my best man. And I was his best man at that wedding. And I got to know doc in some student leadership meetings and he just meant, he was always kind to me and playful and, uh, he punched me so hard in the <laughs> kidney, uh, right before we walked out. You know that little chapel? The oh, yeah. 
So we're in that back room. You've probably been back there. I mean, it's like a teeny tiny room and all of us, um, all the groomsmen were standing there and you know this about doc. He had this tradition where he wouldn't show up for rehearsal. He just, he said, plan everything and I'll show up, tell me when to go out. I'll do my thing. And then I'm done. So we hadn't seen him and it's about four minutes before we're supposed to, supposed to go out and he hasn't shown up yet. And as Gabe's best man, I'm standing behind Gabe, obviously. And we're kind of facing out to walk out, just waiting on doc. And he walked in unbeknownst to me. And do you know the Benham brothers? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so they're in the wedding as well. And so I'm standing behind Gabe. So I'm between Gabe and the two Benham twins. And he snuck in and I wasn't paying attention. I was probably talking to Gabe and he came up and hit me in the kidney. He was a very big man. He was a strong man. <laughs> and at that point, I'm probably 145 pounds. And he hit me so hard, Mike, that I literally thought I was going to faint. And, and I, I remember the first five minutes of the wedding, my eyes were watering <laughs> because I had a searing pain in my kidney. And that is classic. To, he wasn't trying to hurt me. He just was that way. Like he was just, you know what I mean? That's hey. who he was, man. <laughs> he was either going to hit you or run you down in a suburban on the sidewalk. One of the two oh, was, was going to happen. I was a date. I was dating a girl who he literally drove up behind her one day at a stop sign and bumped her with his big suburban. <laughs> just tapped it. And she oh like, gosh! She looks in the rearview mirror and it's Jerry smiling. You know, I love it, man. Yeah. I tell you, man. I, every time I'm up there to see my daughter, and it, it, you just go down memory lane because you're yeah. my life. You know, your adult life's formed there. Your friends are formed there. So tell me about. Le- you love leadership. It comes out in your podcast. It comes out in your interviews, comes out in your book. What is it about leadership that you say you love the most? Um, that's a fantastic question. I think I love the responsibility that leaders have to lift others. I think that's probably what I love the most about leadership. That's the, cause I'm not, I'm not called to be a leadership guy. I mean, I host the entree leadership podcast. I've worked with John Maxwell. I do love leadership and I'm a student yeah. of it. I'm not a traditional leader. I'm a, right. you know, honestly, I'm a thought leader right now and, and seeking to become more of one. Um, but I love the responsibility that leaders have to lift the organization that they lead to lift others that they lead. I think that to me is the coolest thing. That's what I'm most fascinated about when I read about leaders. And you, and you see so many great leaders and you've had a front row seat around some of the best back to doc back to your time with John and those early days of, of ISS moving to Atlanta and all, Mm -hmm. all this. I had some good buddies that worked over there and, and now with Dave, who is a current, good night. I mean, he's currently setting the trend. How have you noticed their faith has integrated with their leadership? You've been around definitely in the Christian space, some great leaders, but you've been around other great leaders. How have you noticed people that have really used their faith to lead spiritually? How have they done that? Have there been common things they've done that you say, these are things that have stood out about them? Yeah. Um, two things that I've seen consistently with leaders that I've been able to work under, they are, um, they have great audacity and this is in response to your answer, like because of their faith, because of their relationship with Jesus, they have huge audacity and it goes back to that Jerry quote. They, they have so much faith in their calling Mm. that they've been appointed 
anointed that their audacity is crazy. They're just, they're just fearless. They, they say what they're supposed to say. They don't shy away from it. They do what they believe they're supposed to do and they don't shy away with it. So I would say audacity and then humility. Mm. So the two things that I think that I've seen is audacity and humility. And I think in, I think many times we, we need to review what humility is. It's, it's, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. And what I mean by they have great humility is they, and I see this with Dave and John. So these are the two leaders that I'm, I'm most speaking about right now who I've been able to spend private time with and I've seen them and I can tell you they're both authentic, but both John Maxwell and Dave Ramsey, their humility comes out when you see that they take their role so seriously they don't take themselves seriously but they they realize how much that their audiences and their tribes trust them and that if they're not careful if they make it all about them it's going to come crumbling down they it it is a holy humility like Mm. it like they take it real seriously they bleed it they love it but it's not about them they realize that they're being used that they are uh, weapons, they are tools for something that is so much bigger than them. I think that's what I've noticed. Did you struggle to see yourself as a leader? What, was there a season in your life, Ken, that you went, well, I'm just going to be a background guy. I'm just going to be a guy that supports great leaders. Was it hard to go, man, you know what? God's got a, God's got a plan. He's wanting to use me as a thought leader and he's wanting to use my skills. Um, yeah, I really, no, I never struggled with, uh, I never thought that I was going to be a background guy ever, 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 ever. I mean, 16 years old, I'm sitting in a high school chapel and I knew God had a public call in my life. Again, I thought it was politics. I now know it was a public call. So I never wrestled with that. I just knew that in order for me to be a uh, thought leader, I was going to have to learn how to follow. Mm. And I knew I had to put myself around people that we're going to rub off on me, drip off on me, you know, that idea. And, um, I'm just, I'm a, just a ferocious, ferocious learner. And I learn by observation as much as anything. And, um, I'm a mimic. And so I was able to model a lot of things. Uh, but now I did struggle with positional leadership. I will tell you that because I knew in my heart, I, because I was a VP for John and his company. I also ran a $6 million speakers bureau, you know, in uh, Nashville, my first time here. So I was a CEO for four years. Mm-hmm. I, I just wasn't good at leading teams in my late twenties. Cause I'm at that point I was too immature and I'm such an intense dude. And so I remember going, this isn't as fun as I thought. And it was just because of my intensity. I didn't know how to channel that. You know, I was always running faster than everybody else, thinking faster than everybody else and expected everybody to be on my uh, pace. And that that's just immature. So there were times where I was like, this, this leading teams business is nonsense. What I fell in love with was something I heard Maxwell say early on, which is leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. So, you know, I'm a leader here at Ramsey Solutions because I'm platformed. I'm, I'm the guest host of the Dave Ramsey Show. Nobody else has done that in 25 years. Uh, you know, I've been on stage with Dave for three years. I host his leadership podcast and I have my own show. So I'm a leader, but I'm a thought leader. 
And I do have to lead my producer and my assistant producer. I have to lead the people that serve me uh, at times, but not in a team leadership model. So yeah, I, I was never really great at that because I was young and immature and I wasn't really going that path. If, if I was called to be an organizational leader, right. I think I would embrace it, but I, I, um, I seek to be a thought leader. And so that's a little bit different role. You understand that. So that's how I would, that's, I'm answering it that way because it's a, it's, there's a delineation there. So let me, let me ask you this, Ken, how, how has your faith shaped you? who you are today, the kind of leader you are, the kind of person you are, how is your faith shaping that? Cause it's not, a, I know it's not a one-time shaping. It is a constant. How's that happen for you? Um, I think the greatest shaping that has happened in my professional career as a result of my faith is my unwavering desire mm. to make sure that I maximize my gifts for the kingdom. I, I have a haunting, um, that's, that's probably a really fleshly source calling myself out there. The source of that is probably fleshly. I really want, um, to make sure that, um, I make a difference, but it's not make a difference for others. I want, I want Jesus to look at me and go, you did your share of screw ups and you failed here, here and here. But I'll tell you one thing, kid, you really, really gave everything you had to me. You really gave your, your talents to me. You gave me your passion. It was for me. I know it was for me and I appreciate that. And I, I think that that's what drives me. I, um, I grew up in, I'm a pastor's kid and I don't know where this quote comes from. So you might know it. I just didn't want anybody to think that I was making it up, uh, and get credit for it. But there's an old quote that my dad shared with me when I was young and it has stayed with me. And, uh, it speaks to this answer and it says only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And I think that's the theme of my life. And that's, that's where my faith shapes me because it, no matter how good things are going for me or how bad things are going for me. Um, Cause I'm in a new phase, Mike, honestly, where I'm getting a lot of affirmation and, and every day. Yep. And if you're not real careful, you start thinking that you're pretty stinking awesome. And that keeps me grounded that um, this isn't about me. It's not about my acclaim. It's not about my fame. It's about his fame. It's about his acclaim. And he's given me this desire and I've got to make sure it stays heavenly and not earthly. And so, uh, that that's, that's it, man. I think that's the thing that has kept me going. It's, it's, it has pushed me into big faith leaps because I didn't have the courage to do it, but I had this thing going, if you don't do this, you're going to, you're going to regret it. I just don't want any grit. I don't want any regrets on my death. I, I, you know, I want to say, hey, this was a, we gave it a good run. It was a good run. That's what I want. And I, and I want Jesus to agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> do you feel like you're in your sweet spot? I know sweet spot's big to you. Do you oh, feel yeah. like you're in your sweet spot right now? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. That's why when Dave offered me the role that I'm not in, I mean, he offered me a different role three years ago. 
but I don't mind sharing this. When Dave, he called me in his office, I was up here hosting the very first smart, smart conference. It was a contract deal. And at the end of the day, he, he cast a vision for a, a stage role and a platform boost role, but still support, still a little pay your dues kind of a role. Mm-hmm. And I walked out in the parking lot, got my car. In fact, right outside this window, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. And I got in the car and I called Stacy and I said, the first thing she goes, she goes, how'd the day go? I said, great. And I said, I think we're moving to Nashville. And she's like, wow. She's like, what? And, you know, I spent probably 45 minutes while driving home to Atlanta telling her everything. And uh, I had already made the decision. And I had a friend tell me, or ask me several months later, he goes, well, did you, how long did you pray about it? And I said, I didn't pray about it. And he said, it kind of looked like, ooh. And I could read it on his face. I was like, hey, bro, look. When God kicks a door down, I don't need to ask God if he kicked the door down. That's right. The door down. So why do I got to sit in prayer and go, God, um, I'm pretty sure you kicked this door down. Did you kick the door down for somebody else? Because there wasn't anybody else in the conversation. Yep. You see what I'm saying? And I Absolutely. just feel like we, we, that's where fear comes in and the flesh comes in. Yep. So I feel like I was being more spiritual and, 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 and I was exhibiting more faith by going, this is so stinking obvious because this is what I've been praying for an opportunity like this. That's this right. I had been in my quiet time with God and longing for this. And when he kicks the door down, it's like, okay, let's go. Well, it's, it's like the story in the book of Acts when they're all praying for the guys to be released from prison and they're at the door knocking, asking to come in and they didn't believe it was them. And that's what they'd been praying for. That's right. That's a great example. It's so, it's so true. And man, you know, sometimes God opens doors, sometimes he closes doors, but when you've made it a process of faith, you know, you know, in your spirit, man, this is, this is it. And, and seeing how your niche now, it looks like, and you said something, you you said something earlier, Cameron, if it was pre or post, but you said, man, I've got a great team around me. So now I'm able to slide into that team to use what I've been gifted to do. Yeah, Yeah, that's so so good. So I'm not just in my sweet spot um, professionally. I'm in my sweet spot functionally now. Correct. I'm using my top talents to perform my great passion. That's the sweet spot. It's where where the intersection of your talent, excuse me, it's where the talent, your top talent, your top passion intersect. That's right. And so I've just rephrased that over time to say it's where you use your top talent to perform the work that you love to do. And now I don't come in. I've been a lone wolf and now I don't come in and do anything that I'm not good at. There's other people that are great at that. And I come in and do exactly what I'm, what I'm really, really good at. And it's uh, yeah, not only my sweet spot, I'm helping people find theirs. That is my sweet spot. My sweet spot is to help others find their sweet spot. That's so good. And that's what we do on the Ken Coleman show every day. I mean, people are calling me every day, Mike, and it's the joy of my life to talk to a 45 year old uh, retired Marine yesterday who started off the phone call. I said, Hey, what can I do to help? And he says, Ken, I need you to help me figure out what I want to do when I grow up. And he kind of chuckled and I found that to be so refreshing and so innocent, but it was absolutely true. And nine minutes later, his comment was, wow, Ken, you make this sound really easy. And I chuckled. That's awesome. It actually is really easy. And we spent nine minutes walking through his top talents. And then I walked him through his top passions. And then I showed him a patterns to his answers. 
And I said, I think this is what you need to be doing. And he, it was like a light bulb went off and he went, you're exactly right. That is so good. It isn't it interesting how our sweet spots at the end of the day, when we're using them the right way, our sweet spots are all never really for our benefit. They're no. always for the benefit of other people. No. And I, I get asked so many times by people, how do I know when I'm being used? Well, when you're using your life to benefit somebody else, and I even go back to your book, I go back to your podcast, I go back to all these things and how you've used even those interviews to pull something out that somebody else needs. They right. need that. They need that encouragement for their journey. What was the interview that you've enjoyed the most? You, you've interviewed hundreds, if not thousands of people through the years for the book, for the podcast. Was there one in particular that stood out and why, why did it stand out for you? Yeah, it's such an easy answer. It's my favorite by a long shot. And what's great about it is it was the very first formal interview I had ever done. In fact, I can't remember ever interviewing a teacher or interviewing a fellow student for a project. It was the very first interview I ever did. I was working with John Maxwell and I was the uh, guy who wrote the interview for the guy who was going to do the interview. And, and I don't, I'll tell the whole story if you want. And it's in the, it's the first story in the book. Yeah, it's first the story in the book. So good. Tell it. I love it. It's classic. It's, it's It's God, man. And, and I'm, I love telling it because it, this is how God works. So John Maxwell was going to have a uh, international um, simulcast, leadership simulcast, and all these big names. It was going to be in Atlanta. And one of the speakers we booked, uh, I think his fee was probably 70, 80 grand, was Coach K, the legendary coach at Duke, basketball coach. And two weeks prior to the event, we got a phone call from his assistant. And she said, hey, uh, I am so sorry. Coach is sick to his stomach, but, uh, and he never cancels engagements, but, uh, his, one of his best friends who happens to be Steve Wynn, the billionaire, uh, yeah. casino developer out of Las Vegas is opening up Paris, uh, in Las Vegas. And he's invited Mike and Mickey, uh, to come and he's got to go. It's his best friend. He's got to go and he feels bad. He'll give you a full refund. He'll do an interview, anything he can do to make up for it. So. Kevin Small is a president at that time and he's freaking out and he calls me and Gabe Lyons was in that meeting too. And he's like, guys, what are we going to do? And we made the decision. Well, let's at least take him up on the interview offer so that because we've marketed this already. Yeah. Out. So let's, let's do an interview. And so we moved on that and it became the plan that um, we were going to go to Durham and do an interview with him and play the interview during the simulcast. And Bob Rathbun at the time was the play-by-play uh, -play TV voice of the Atlanta Braves. He's now the play-by-play -play TV voice of the Atlanta Hawks. And Bob and I knew each other, and somehow, you know, the name came up. Who could we get that's in professional sports that can do it? And I said, Bob will do it if he can. Called Bob. Bob said, are you kidding me? I'd love to do it. He had called Duke basketball games before, so he knew Mike. And... Uh, but Bob said, I need your help doing the interview. I'm not a leadership interview guy. And so I volunteered and said, well, I love Coach K personally, which that's a whole nother yep. story. I love his book, Leading with the Heart. I know it by the, I literally know it like the back of my hand. I'll write the interview. And Bob's like, great. Kevin's like, great. Let's do it. I said, one caveat, I get to go because I want to meet Coach. Absolutely. So literally, Mike, four days before we're about ready to go, Brad Lominick is producing that simulcast. And... We get a call from Bob and he goes, we had a rain out and major league baseball has scheduled the makeup game on the day I'm supposed to do the interview. I can't do it. 
So Kevin Small's freaking out. He calls Gabe. They're talking, and uh, Small goes, "Who's who can do this? Uh, I I literally have nobody, and we got to do this in four days." And Gabe, God love him, I love him to death because he he said Coleman wrote the interview. He can do it. He wants to get into this. I just began to tell Gabe that I felt yep. I was getting a stir of this. So they so it all happens, and if we go and we do the interview, and I. It's the first time I'd ever done an interview, and I had all my questions on index cards, which is so funny when I think back to this. And about two questions in, I start to ad lib, and it's going great. And he's, it kind of, I can feel the energy. We're sitting knee to knee. Good night. With nothing but a camera crew around us in a darkened uh, Cameron Indoor Arena. It's like my dream. I mean, I love this dude, and I'm getting interviewed him on leadership. And uh, started ad libbing. Thirty minutes in, this is back in the day. People will laugh. We had to stop and change those little, you know, tapes. Yeah. Of, yeah. And so we're stopped for just a couple minutes, and he looks at me, and he says, "I'm really enjoying this, Ken. This may be one of the most enjoyable interviews I've ever done." And I literally don't even look him in the eye. I look at Brad Lomick to see if he's heard this. <laughs> Coach K, could you repeat that one more time? Essentially, that is, that's what I'm thinking. Because I'm, so awesome. I'm so in shock that this is happening. And I need to know if my buddy has heard this. And then he said, you really remind me of one of my good friends. And that's where the whole Charlie Rose thing came, which is now not such a great moniker. So I don't share that story much more. But anyway, it was great. And it was God. It was the moment that I realized, man, I really love this interview thing. Because you got this legend who's giving me this wonderful compliment privately. It wasn't some big thing. And he wasn't, you know, he wasn't BSing me. And, uh, and the interview itself was fun. It was great. We, uh, we talked about so many things. Some of the greatest answers I've ever heard in my life came out of that. So that's the story. And here's the, here's what makes the story super cool. So we get done, he leaves and the crew's breaking everything down and I'm sitting over on the Duke bench. I've taken my suit coat off and I'm just sitting there, honestly, just in fantasy land. I can't imagine what happened. And his assistant walks in the gym and she says, Hey, her name's Jerry. She's still his assistant. And she says, Hey guys, coach really loved it. He came in the office and said he loved the interview. Ken, he really, really enjoyed it. Wants to thank you. And she goes, I got a basketball. If you guys want to shoot for a little bit, there's nothing going on in the gym. And I'm just like, because basketball is my favorite sport. So she bounces the ball to me. I walk out uh, in my, you know, I keep my sleeves buttoned. I walk out to the three point line and Brad Lominick will back all of this up and as will the crew. And I walk up to, and I tow to the line, the three point line and I shoot a shot. And it was one of those deals, Mike, as soon as I let it go, I knew it was good, but I held the pose kind of like, is this going to go <laughs> and didn't even hit the rim? It was a completely perfect net shot. And the crew was like, Oh, and Brad Lominick looks at me and he's just laughing. And I looked at him and I just went, that's it. I'm never shoot. I'm not shooting another shot. No. Days, that's going to be a great story. And I literally walked off the court and sat down and Brad and the crew shot around. That cool. is. I just believe God did all that. I really do. I honestly believe God did that because you can't imagine the confidence it gave me to, oh, to man. pursue everything. So at the end of when we've talked about Dr. Falwell and we've talked about Dave and we've talked about John, how do you want somebody to describe Ken Coleman? How do you want another kid one day on a something that won't be a podcast, but something where they're, they're looking back and they're describing great leaders and great thought leaders and great people. What do you want them to say about you? Mm, that he was as real in person as he is on his show. 
that he is or he was an enthusiastic learner for the purposes of helping his audience, that he cared as much about the one-on-one interaction as he did hosted a national show, um, that he gave everything he had to help others discover who their creator created them to be. That's a really hard question to answer. So I'll stop there. Cause I don't, yeah, I, I think that, I think that would probably be it that he gave everything he had. I hope you enjoyed that time with Ken. You know, that was one of those, I got off the call that day and I was honored to have been able to be a part of it. Uh, man, Ken is not only a great question asker, Ken is a great answer to questions. And there is so much there behind the scenes that you may never hear in his interviews, but you sure hear when he is being interviewed. You know, there's a reason that he set brand standard with the Catalyst Leadership Podcast back in the day, and he is a leading uh, guy in the field today with the Entree Leadership Podcast. The way he's able to interview guests, the way he is able to pull truth from them to make it a comfortable setting for them. But it was such an honor to sit down with Ken and flip the tables on him a little bit and learn where all that came from, learn where he got the skills that he has and how he hones his skills. And, you know, I, I come up with a word um, for every podcast. And I think the word for Ken is is not something he did, but it was probably what I felt was challenged. I felt challenged to really be at my best because I respect his craft and his skill so much. And I think that anyone being interviewed by Ken probably feels the same way. They feel like, all right, I got to come with my best game. I got to come with my best. It's going to, it's going to challenge me to be who I was created to be. Gosh, Ken, thank you so much. You know, I hope you're enjoying these each and every uh, time that you get to listen in. We have done some two a month. Sometimes we've done three a month. We're going to be mixing it up a little bit even more in late 2018, 2019, because we've got a backlog of incredible, incredible, timely guests to help you in your journey. Remember, this isn't just about you being a great leader, which that's what we want. We want you to be a great leader. But even more importantly, we want you to be a great spiritual leader. When God remains center and focused in your life, you become the person he created you to be. And I hope that is your takeaway. Maybe you're a guy or a lady out there who just got turned on to this by a friend or seeing someone retweet it or post about it, and you've started listening in. I want you to know the end game of all this is is that you begin to realize what a role that Jesus Christ and your Heavenly Father wants to play in your life. And man, when you get that, it makes all the difference in the world. If you say, Mike, I want to know more about that, do not hesitate to reach out to us. You can email me directly at northstarchurch at mike.lynch, L-I-N-C-H, at northstarchurch.org. And I would love to serve and help you any way that I possibly can.
Well, thanks again for listening in today. I can't wait to release episode 31 to you. More great content, more great guests, more great stuff coming. So until then, go be the leader that God created you to be. And I hope you'll share this with a friend so they can become that leader as well. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.